One of my favorite times of the day has always been and remains early in the morning. You know, when I was working, I would always get up at 5, 5.30, be one of the first ones into the office because it was quiet and you could have some alone time. I still attend two 6 a.m. meetings. I've always liked that because everybody's got to go to work so they don't talk so much. And we can get our business done. I attend a sermon study with a number of people uh, and the two pastors that we have here on Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. And I attend a men's Bible study on Friday morning at 6 a.m. You think, well, you're retired, find one in the evening. No, I like to get up early in the morning. And even when I'm not going to those meetings, I still get up early. And I go and make some coffee. You gotta have a good cup. It's gotta, it's gotta be heavy enough to hold the heat. You know, if I'm running errands, I'll, I'll get a to-go cup, even at my own house, because that's part of what I do. And then I sit down before anybody else is up and, and I read. I probably read a book a month. Carol probably reads twice as many as I do. I like books about people, real people. I rarely read a novel, although if somebody highly recommends one, I have read a few. But books like this, and, and I'm eclectic in my style. It may be a historic book about a battle in a war, or it may be like this, Buffalo for the Broken Heart, about a teacher in South Dakota uh, near the Black Hills. Uh, who developed an interest in raising buffalo and now runs and uh, operates one of the biggest buffalo herds uh, that has restored that part of the country to the way it used to be uh, when settlers first moved west. Uh, He uses some public land, but he's also developed quite a farm of his own. Interesting story about uh, his life there. And I read this one. I've seen it a number of years, and I always passed it by because I know the story, and I didn't really want to read it, but uh, I finally uh, convinced myself that I should. It's called In Harm's Way. It's the story about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. Um, It was one of the last heavy cruisers that was sunk by the Japanese uh, in World War II. It was actually the ship that brought the uh, atomic bomb Uh, to uh, the islands that was uh, shortly thereafter dropped on Hiroshima. Uh, But after having accomplished that feat, it was headed to um, prepare for the invasion, what everybody thought would be the invasion of Japan when it was sunk. 1,200 men on that ship. Uh, 300 were killed immediately in the torpedoing of their ship at midnight. 900 entered the water. Many of them died immediately. 200 of them died by shark attack. That's why I didn't want to read it. But this is told about the the 300, only 320 men that survived, and it's their story. And it's a fascinating story in in how they managed to uh, put their lives back together or not. And then this one uh, I found in a bookstore. I tend to walk through used bookstores and just find books that might be of interest to me. It's called A Separate Place, David Brill. David Brill, in my mind, has the absolute perfect job. He's a uh, professor, an adjunct professor, a part-time professor at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And uh, it's a perfect place to live because of the Smoky Mountains that are there. 
And uh, he's got the perfect job because he's written five books and he gets to teach journalism. You know, what could be better than that? And not only that, he has uh, been hired by National Geographic and Backpacker Magazine and other outdoor magazines to go have adventures and then write about them. I mean, how good could that be? He once uh, took a year and walked the entire Appalachian Trail from down by Atlanta all the way to Maine, 1,200 miles. And he got paid for doing it and wrote about it. And this is called A Separate Place, which is uh, his wife got tired of him wandering around the world and, and said, you need to stay here. So he uh, and his family built this cabin uh, in the woods of Tennessee. It's about an hour and a half uh, from where uh, they live. And uh, they split time there. And he spends a lot of time there alone even because he loves so much the woods. They raised two daughters. And there's an interesting uh, surprise in the book for me as I, I began to read about uh, his lifestyle and, and what was of interest to him and some of his adventures. Uh, it talks about when his one daughter was in third grade. She was given the assignment, as was her entire class, to write a, uh, a pen pal letter to a girl that would benefit from their school's charity uh, for poor kids in Appalachia. Uh, they weren't going to just give them gifts. They also wanted them to write letters. And so they, were, they received names. And uh, she sat down, third grade, uh, to write a letter to a girl whose name she had received. And uh, dad got down on the floor and, and began to write it with her. She said, um, Dear Sarah, are you ready for Christmas? She began sculpting the large rounded letters like a third grader would. I quickly pointed out that it might be a bit presumptuous to assume that her pen pal would be celebrating Christmas. Christmas is a Christian holiday, I said. It's an observance of the birth of Jesus Christ. You don't know for sure that Sarah is a Christian. Oh, Dad, I'm sure she is. Logan answered with complete confidence. After all, she's an American. I struggled not to laugh. Truth is, Logan was only echoing a popular assumption in this country reinforced in the churches that place the cross of Jesus and the American flag side by side in their sanctuary. Well, not all Americans are Christians, Logan, I said. I pointed out that the girl's babysitter is Hindu and that Logan's friend, uh, Polly, is Jewish. You might want to ask your pen pal if she's getting ready for the holiday instead, I suggested. Oh, yeah, Logan said. Her tongue reappeared as she began to write, then after a few seconds, she stopped and furrowed her brow and said, Dad, what are we? The question threw me largely because I didn't have an answer, at least not a simple one. I'd spent the better part of my adult life trying to find a spiritual doctrine that didn't feel like dogma one that liberated my soul rather than encumbered it. That was not such a simple task in the Bible Belt, where Christians are oftentimes synonymous with intolerance and where faith is predicated in fear and a perversion of Christ's message of love and acceptance. Logan, we are what they call seekers, I said. People who are searching for answers but haven't quite found them yet. This search is about the most important thing we do 
in our lives, and it's also one of the most difficult. It's something we all need to think about and work on. I continued. It's interesting. He told his third grader that it was probably one of the most important things that they do, and yet he had not had a conversation with her about it. You know, ideally, we believe that it's important. But in practice, we get so busy with things that are unimportant. It's called mission drift. We know what we should be doing. We know what really matters. And yet we get so busy with the details of life that we don't have time for those things that are we know deep in our heart that are essential. Our text speaks about that today. It warns about it. It's Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4, verse 17. He said, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as non-believers walk in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life that God intends because of ignorance that is in them. It comes off as feeling sorry for those who don't know any better because of their ignorance. But that ignorance is not our ignorance. It's the ignorance of those who have yet to believe And yet we can slip back in to that same kind of lifestyle, living as if we don't know what's important, living as though the life that God intends is not the life that we're busy about. And they, having become callous and having given themselves over to sensuality, and I'm not talking sexuality here, I'm talking about You know, everything you can see, everything you can touch, everything you can taste, you know, all the things that that people think will bring them happiness. They've given themselves over to these things for the practice of greediness. But you have not learned Christ in this way. It's really such a shallow way to live when you live for yourself, when you live for the things that you can possess, the things you can touch, the things you can see, the things you can buy as the commercials, you know, constantly during this time of year, especially push our way and cause us to live a greedy life. To live a generous life, to live a relational life, to live a giving life is such a better life. You have not learned Christ in this way, if indeed you have learned of him at all. Truth is in Jesus, that in reference to the former manner of life, you laid aside that life, that old self, corrupted in accordance with the deceit that it brings, so that you might be renewed in what is truly important in your spirit and put on the new self, which has been created in the likeness of God, and is being created in the righteousness and holiness of truth. Mission drift. You know, he's, he's warning us to not slip back into the life that everybody else is living. 
And it's hard because every commercial and every person that we admire and that we work next to, that, that we see on the street, that lives in our neighborhood, is drawn to those things because that's all they know. But we know better. Don't go back into the darkness, he said. You've been called into the light. I wonder, are you a nocturnal person? Or are you a, a diurnal person of the day, Latin for of the day? Of the night or of the day? When are you most afraid of the dark? For me, it's when I spend most of my time in the light. Because when you're in the light, when you move into the darkness, you can't see at all. The most dangerous walk I ever make is early in the morning. Because I get up and go to the master bathroom, which is, you know, adjacent to our bedroom. Because Carol is still sleeping, I shut the door and turn the lights on and get ready for the day. And then I have to turn that light off and walk in the darkness again to the closet. Now, I know there are two doors between me and that closet, and I could run into either one of them. And I'm blinded by the light that I've just had on, and so I'm walking, trying to not run into one of the doors as I move, you know, towards that closet. One of our greatest concerns as a couple was that we were going to raise our kids in the light. And a lot of pastors' kids that are raised in the light no longer move very well in the darkness or only live in the darkness and resist and, and, and push away the light altogether. In fact, it's true in the Bible as well. In our sermon study this past week, we talked about uh, some of the great heroes of the Bible who were just awful fathers, whether it was David or whether it was Samuel or whether it was Eli. And Samuel, as a young boy, was, was called to tell Eli how, you know, how he had failed his sons. And then Samuel went off and failed his sons as well. And so we worried about, would our boys grow up to, to still love the light? Or would they love the darkness? And to do that, you have to live in both places. You can't just isolate yourself and say, Christians only live this way. And become so pious and so rigid and so ritualistic in your faith that it's not authentic faith at all. You know what helps me move through the darkness? Are the small lights. I bet it's true for you too. You know, it's the smoke detector, or it's the light on the microwave, or it's the printer in my office. You know, those little pinpoints of light, I can walk towards them, and I know because I can see them, there's nothing between me and those. And it's true of the world as well. We are to be those small pinpoints of light for those who are living in the darkness, because your eye is drawn to the light. You know, over my shoulder are the wise men who followed that still small light all the way to the Savior. People are still noticing the lights in their darkness because they're looking for something better. They're looking for that answer that all these sensual experiences is not able to provide. You can provide that by bringing that light into their world, by living that faith openly wherever you are. And I don't want to 
patronize or, or brag about my wife, but she's a constant witness to me about this. She engages. I was telling somebody the other day that, you know, in checkout lines, uh, she would aggravate me if she wasn't my wife because she'll talk to the person checking out instead of getting her job done. And, and she, she'll want to know about them and, and when they get off and if they're having a good day or a bad day. And they love that. And she'll go to the same register and she'll talk to the same person over and over until she develops a relationship with them. And she knows them by name and they know her and they smile when she comes. She's being that light, you know, in the darkness that we're all called to be. David Brill said that, you know, we are seekers. And it's one of the most important things that we do, not knowing yet what the answers might be, he told his daughter. I'll bet today he's probably still that seeker, still hasn't found what he's been looking for. But we should be seekers too, a different kind of seeker, not seeking for the answers that we know are found in Christ, especially during Advent, but seekers of the lost, those lights that go out into the darkness, living in both places, not living only the Christian life, not moving only among Christians, not only being in worship, but being intentional about the way we live our faith so that others might see the good works that we do and come to know Christ. Jesus said a couple of things. He said, you are to be in the world, but not of the world. You know, we're not to isolate. We're not to be monastics. We're not to be uh, people who live in convents, who wall themselves off from the evil world. No, we're called to go out into the world, but not be of the world. In Matthew 5, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and and glorify your Father in heaven, that they might say there's something different about this person and I want to know about them. We're not above being David Brill. We're not above a person who used to be a Christian but is no longer raising their children to be Christian and our children may one day say, what are we, Dad? I would hope you would have a better answer than we are just seekers. But it can happen to anyone. It happened to Dr. James Dobson. Remember Dobson, focused on the family. He was raised as a pastor's kid and he became quite famous when he wrote the book Dare to Discipline. He wrote The Strong-Willed Child and established Focus on the Family Ministries and is world-renowned. And he was going 100 miles an hour when his dad, who was a, a quiet country preacher, wrote him a letter and this is what he said. He said, I will long remember and be indebted for the words of my father back in 1969. He wrote, I have observed that the greatest delusion is to suppose that our children will be devout Christians simply because their parents have been, or that any of them will enter into the Christian faith in any other way than through their parents' deep travail of prayer and faith. But this prayer demands your time, time that cannot be given if it's all signed and conscripted and laid on the altar of career ambition, if you're just so busy. Failure for you on this point Raising those you love to know Jesus would make mere success in every other aspect of your life a very pale and washed out affair indeed. One last comment from our Lord and Savior Christ that 
we are preparing to um, celebrate in his birth. He asked, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, to have success in every other thing, and yet forfeit your soul? For whoever does not honor me in his life, the Son of Man will not honor when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. May God grant that during this Advent season, you recommit to those things that are most important, not just intellectually saying these are things that should matter, but making them things that absolutely do matter. Let me pray. Gracious word, Lord, we are um, living in the darkness of a world that has uh, yet to know you as Savior or who may know you intellectually and believe that that is the most significant thing that they should be giving their time to but are not. Lord, keep us close to you and draw our hearts into a relationship with you ever tighter as we approach the celebration of your birth. Bless us, Lord, that that we might be seekers, not seekers of what we know to be true, that you are the Savior and Lord of life, but seekers of those who are milling around in the darkness, that we might be that point of light that would draw them you know, towards you by the way we love, by the conversations we have, and by the way we talk. Lord, bless us to be people like this. Let this be our advent in Jesus Christ. Amen.